Hello and welcome to the Cityscape Wire podcast. I'm your host, Tanisha, and in today's podcast, I'm talking to award-winning architect, climate activist, strategist, and author, Farah Naz. Farah has spent the past two decades working across four continents, taking up the fight against the climate crisis and working on what she calls rewriting a new and bold climate story for humanity. Her book, The Net Zero City, has traveled across the globe and today is being used as a framework for many cities as they look for solutions to transition towards net zero. In this podcast, Farah tells us about designing new homes for vulnerable communities in Bangladesh, to being part of projects like the Museum of the Future, the Sustainability Pavilion at Dubai's Expo, and to working on the UK's very first net zero carbon project back in 2010. Well, let's talk about your first initial projects that saw you get into sustainability that really had an impact on you and your profession and where you are today. I started my career in the U.S. I worked across four different continents by this time uh, in 20 years. So in the U.S., I was working mostly for architecture companies, and I got to work with Harvard School of Dental Medicine, the building of that whole university work uh, through the company I was working for. My company, it, uh, they focused a lot on passive design. They focused a lot on engineering aspects of um, sustainability. So that was my first introduction to how sustainability can be incorporated. Because around that time, there was no specific sustainability courses. It was called green architecture, holistic design. Then for a few years, I worked in Southeast Asia. And that experience as a project manager and then leading my own design team. And what happened during that time, I got to travel to Vietnam, Malaysia, Hong Kong, Nepal, India, Bangladesh, all these places, Sri Lanka, um, because we had projects around different parts of these nations. And the interesting part is to see how the climate impacted the architecture, the engineering, and how it impacted the health. So my introduction to sustainability came first through a very basic understanding of architecture and engineering, how to put it together, then delivering projects on-site in different climates. But the biggest impact was we were working in a small housing complex in India and in Bangladesh, and both two different countries, but they had the same problem. It was a multi-story apartment buildings and the women and children had a lot of um, inhalation problem because they were cooking still with uh, little wood sticks in a multi-story apartment building with really bad ventilation. And in Nepal, they have this issue as well. They still love to cook in clay pots with live fire. And we got to change the ventilation system. Some apartments had to be re-demolished because there was an earthquake zone. And we got to design an opportunity to design it completely climate sensitive with natural ventilation and uh, mixed use ventilation. And what really made a big impact on me is I went back one year after the design was completed of these 20 apartment blocks and realized and asked them to show me their medical bills. And they said, oh, we don't have to go to the doctors anymore because we don't have the inhalation problem anymore. We don't cough anymore. And the children don't cough anymore. 
So I learned a lot living and working in London and studying course. But for my master's thesis, I chose, I went back to my experience in Vietnam, India, and Bangladesh and realized there are lots of garment factories that make those two quid t-shirts that you sell, they sell in Primark and US. But what motivated me was interviewing garment factory workers and identifying that they have health issues. So that's how my journey into sustainability started. After my master's, I worked in uh, London for a few years, and I was very fortunate to be an energy modeler for the first net zero carbon building in UK. So at that time, in 2008, you can't Google net zero carbon, but I joined a building services company right after that instead of going back to US. And my first project was to work as an energy modeler for the energy modeling of this community uh, district heating system. But I learned a lot through this process how to make a buildings and a community net zero. So my journey into sustainability was not really um, planned or defined. I followed my curiosity and my passion, but I also took up roles and responsibilities which are completely outside of my comfort zone. So that's how I learned in jobs and working in different places because I think that wide experience is so important because none of our lives are linear, none of our careers are linear. But oftentimes, young people especially nowadays, I think they have a very linear vision, a tunnel vision of the careers. They think, oh, I studied architecture, I should stay in architecture. But oftentimes, moving out of your comfort zone and doing other things like quantity survey or other experience really builds, I think, that experience up. And that's exactly what happened in my case. What an interesting journey to get to where you are, especially on the social human aspect. Well, you you spoke a lot about, of course, net zero, uh, zero carbon, sustainability. I mean, a lot of these words uh, have been thrown around over the last 10 years, and some of them, of course... A lot of greenwashing, as you know. But how would you define these terms for the layman, especially net zero? Net zero is a very new term. The whole world is trying to get understanding of what net zero is. The whole thing started, the history of that is in 2019, a climate emergency was declared globally. The reason being the world temperature was rising. And now there's enough evidence to show that human activities is helping to rise this temperature. So globally, a climate emergency was declared, climate and biodiversity emergency. And as a consequence of that, UK and Europe adopted regulations to follow, to reduce their emissions. This whole journey is called net zero emissions. Net zero essentially means there's three big type of emissions that we all do. Everything that we do is related to emissions, even a glass of water. And everywhere we look has carbon, okay? So... Net zero essentially means, there's lots of term net zero, carbon neutral, carbon positive. The idea is that the world has realized 240 countries have uh, committed for a net zero roadmap. UAE is one of the countries that also committed to a net zero 2050 roadmap. The idea is very simple. The idea encompasses two things, that existing carbon emission that's already around the globe, which is called biosphere, needs to be reduced in some way or form. Secondly, any new emissions we do from transportation, buildings, building our roads, building our factories, building our apartments and shopping malls, we need to find a way how to 
still build, but not produce as much carbon emissions. So just to give an example, the whole idea of cement is a very important ingredient for our construction industry. Just the process of making cement is 3% of the global greenhouse gas emission. 3%. Yeah, it's a huge one, right? Yeah. And building industry, the built environment is responsible for 40% of global greenhouse gas emission. So big numbers. And there is latest data from Institute of Structural Engineers. It's a global organization saying that every week globally, we are building a city the size of Paris. Every week globally, we are building a buildings the size of city of Paris. Now, if you just look at just the urban sectors globally, so the urban, all the cities in the world is Cities usually consume 3% of global land. Global land, 3%. But they are responsible for 80% of waste, 80% of global greenhouse gas emission, okay? Because everybody wants to come and live in the cities. So the whole idea of net zero is to understand how our activities are impacting our climate. That's number one. Then what is the method we can adopt in a sensible and practical way to reduce the emissions? That's number two. And thirdly, what is the roadmap? What are the questions we need to ask? Because it's a big topic. It involves a lot of parties. I think the biggest challenge we globally had is that for the last 40 years, global Globally, most people thought that it's the scientist who's going to save the world and has to deal with climate change. But the last 10 years, the global climate became such a big challenge. It's so clear to investors, to government entities, bodies, private and public sectors, we all have to do our part. And that's where the confusion lies, because a general public will tell you, but I have nothing to do with climate change. It's not my problem. I don't know what to do. I do my recycling. But they, they often forget the cars that they're driving, the shoppings they're doing, the waste that they're creating, the food waste that's going. It's all creating emission. Even the food waste is a big source of carbon emission. So it's conscious way of living. I think that's what it is. So that's the whole idea of net zero. It's understanding what, how our decisions impact the world, but the impact we might not see in our lifetime. It's our great-grandchildren who will face the reality. We are already now seeing that right now, this week and the last few weeks have been the hottest globally and this part of the world, right? You know, I'm always so interested because these words are just thrown around very often and they're used in a lot of I suppose greenwashing, PR, and it's nice to have a thorough breakdown of, okay, what is this? What are we really striving or want to achieve on a citywide level? So on that topic, for our listeners, Farah has written the Net Zero City book, co-written. And I mean, it's a fantastic roadmap or framework on how to build a net zero city. So let's talk very briefly about this book and just the impact that it has had on, on the world. Thank you so much for the question. So myself and Langdon Morris, we met during the COVID times. The reason why we wrote this book together is, first of all, we are both concerned about the future. We are both concerned that 
how we, as a humanity, we are going to address this future and what we can do. And the fact that we all, we both think that we have a responsibility, like Langdon and myself have a responsibility, we, we have to do something. So what we did in the book is we brought in his experience and my experience together. And we wrote a roadmap. Essentially, it's a systems thinking approach. It has sets of questions and ideas for city, whether you're an architect, a city official, a private sector, public sector can use to ask the questions to see, okay, how do we get into a net zero roadmap if we are trying to do it for a company or for a city or for a neighborhood? So it's very transferable. The concepts are very simple. There are four or five key concepts, but it takes it takes the people and allows them to ask those exploratory questions and establish a roadmap. You don't need to be an architect or engineer. You can just read the book, download the roadmap. The questions are all written. The topics are written. And so, okay, how do we try to do something? I think what we must all remember is NetSuri is not a destination, it's a journey. Every single step that we take, every action that we take leads to reducing our emission as an entity, as a company, as a person, and as a nation. So the idea of the book came from, because I've delivered net zero projects, when I wrote the book, I was finishing up delivering Museum of the Future, which has a net zero strategy, Expo Sustainability Pavilion, which also has a net zero strategy, and we did a net zero modeling for that, for the Terra Pavilion. I was also working on BIA headquarters in Sharjah with Zahadid Architects, and we did net zero modeling. So at that time when I wrote the book, I was doing, my team was working on several net zero modeling and advising projects in UAE. But then I myself have done it 10 years ago in UK. And we were also developing operational strategies for different clients to operate as a net zero. Because, you know, it has, it's a step-by-step journey. So the clients have to be understanding. The facility management team has to operate it. And then, you know, you take this forward. So the purpose of the book is to share the knowledge and understanding. Secondly, to come up with a systematic approach that anybody can take from any experience level and take it forward. Now, the interesting part is we wrote this book now two years ago. More than 10,000 copies have been sold. We have shipped the book uh, freely to any person who have asked. I've met people, students who are using the book across the globe to do their projects, to learn, to understand, and message myself and Langdon to ask questions. The interesting part is the book talks about 113 case studies, where 112 are very positive things happening globally, and we included one case study, which is a disaster. There's a reason why we included it, because people need to know what good looks like and what bad looks like. Oftentimes, the whole world of sustainability gets a bit gray area because there's so many things happening. There's so much information. So oftentimes we get muddled to what does good look like for a net zero. So I think that's the whole idea and the intention of the book. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing it being used on government levels anywhere in the world? Yes. So interestingly, there are government entities who have reached out and they're using the book to undertake a roadmap to set up their strategies, their next steps and their actions for the government entities. I've been reached by several entities as well, and I'm working with them at the moment right now, establishing their net zero readiness roadmap. 
So this book talks about net zero, but before an entity, whether it's a government or a big developer going into net zero, they need to get ready. So right now, I'm currently working on four net zero readiness strategy in the UAE and abroad, looking at from a developer perspective, from a return of investment perspective, business perspective, energy perspective, how do we transition to net zero? You cannot have an amazing sustainability policy without the finance. The return of investment have to be modeled. There should be a business modeling done. So most of the projects that I work on, there's always a financial analyst doing the business modeling analysis of the different technologies. But the idea is that the investment has to be very much aligned. So UK, when UK government announced that they want to go for net zero and the regulations were getting set up, the UK Asset Owners Alliance, they all got together, all the asset owners globally, especially based in UK and abroad. They represent, I think, 20 billion US dollars assets and they formed an organization to look at net zero transition for all their assets. Because think of it, if there's a flood, flood impacts assets, right? There's a lot of flash floods happening in different parts of the world. What strategies you implement from a climate adaptation and mitigation perspective to preserve and conserve your assets? Because once a flash flood happens, it's, it's billions of dollars of waste. Well, you touched on something really interesting there and in your answer around how it's important to also see the cities that the, the good cities versus the bad cities or just looking at the challenges. What are some of like the challenges and stumbling blocks towards net zero that it, especially in this age of sustainability? Would finance be a big one? Yes. So first one is the definition of net zero have to be very clear. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a government entity who are looking at a city or a developer looking at a community level. So they need to first define very clearly what net zero means for them as a business and a business entity. That's the first thing. Second thing is having target and a KPI, setting a roadmap, what's realistic for them. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, how will they reach? Having a very clear plan on setting targets and KPIs is very important. And then the third thing is to have a business plan that matches the targets and KPIs. So if if, if it's a developer, they then need to understand how the investment modeling will align with their sustainability targets. But recently, in the last few months, there are few Global documents have been published and still in consultation to set this global assessment methodology for net zero. The first one is PASS 2080 that was issued by UK government a few months ago that will look at buildings and infrastructure together. Because if we can't monitor something, if we can't measure something, how will you measure success, right? Abu Dhabi government has Estadama. Everybody knows what Estadama is. It's a sustainability assessment. It's three, four pearl. Initially, when it was launched 12 years ago, people were not sure how it would work. But now every building is going for Estadama. Everybody knows how to do it. It's not a big cost. But 15, 12 years ago, when Estadama was launched, everybody was concerned that it will add 10% more to the cost. This is just UAE. 
globally, there's a lead assessment. Most building goes for lead assessment. When lead was launched 15 years ago, there was a global, um, there are lots of articles nowadays I find 15 years, written 15 years ago talking about lead buildings are 15% more expensive because you need to do this, that. Now, every building across the globe, even in UAE and Saudi Arabia, are going for lead. It's bread and butter. So what I'm saying is that, and to summarize my point, is that this year there's a lot of global standards that are coming to quantify net zero. Once these standards are released and confirmed globally, then from next year onwards, there will be more clear methodical approach to net zero. So that's what we would like to see. So right now, that's where the world is in creating a methodology to assess net zero. But I truly believe now that UAE have announced its net zero 2050 targets, now that Saudi Arabia has announced this year we're going to have COP28 in the region. This is going to shift because we need a big shift. There's some amazing people who are really pushing this agenda and they're being very, very authentic in the knowledge and the awareness and the experience they're bringing in. So that's very positive. I think once what we would like to see is more good practice case studies in the region. You know, um, like mass across the GCC, across really. the GCC. Anyway, like we won't really want to see some good case studies, like for example, from Museum of the Future or Terra Expo Pavilion. Like, what are the energy consumption figures? How are they optimizing it? Because this sharing of knowledge will really help create a positive competition. <sighs> Right. Will we see the sharing of knowledge over the next few years? Would it just take a while in, in order for them to go on their journey for us to see carbon? Hopefully very soon, because we really need a very unified a platform where all the sharing of knowledge can happen so people can learn from it and say, okay, how can I do better? We really need to focus on doing more good than doing less bad. You know, there's a difference. I would like to do more good than... I would like to do less bad. So I think that's the big shift in the conversation. Get ready for Cityscape Global, the most ambitious global real estate event the world has ever seen. Taking place from the 10th to the 13th September at the Riyadh Exhibition and Convention Center, Malham, Saudi Arabia, Cityscape Global will include more than 200 global and regional speakers on multiple stages. From stages that include the Future Living Summit, Property Portfolio Forum, the Institutional Investor Forum, PropTech Stage, Design and Architecture, and for the first time, dedicated Cityscape Wire-powered forums, think tanks, workshops, and masterclasses. Register today at cityscapeglobal.com. Well, let's talk about gender parity in the architecture world and construction world. You are incredibly passionate and vocal about it. Do you think there's still a lot of hurdles to bridge when it comes to uh, gender gaps? Yes. <laughs> yes, there is. Okay, yeah. Well, what would you say some of the biggest gaps are at the moment? I think it's two ways. I worked in the UK for a long time. And I used to run WIBSI, Women in Building Services Engineering, because I was chair of Southeast Region. I, I sub-chaired it. And we used to learn, do a lot of leadership sessions. And what came out of these leadership sessions is women don't negotiate enough. They're very 
not consistent with negotiating salary. So there's a lot of, it's not about confidence. It's just that knowing that you have the right to do that, you know. So I think there is a gender parity challenge and each challenge is different in each country and region. I think we have to be quite vocal about it. We have to be quite vocal in what we want and what we would like it to look like. And we all have to work together to change the culture and have those conversations. It's very easy to complain and do nothing about it and think it's someone else's responsibility to do it. My view is if I today am not doing anything about it, I'm not serving or trying to make any changes, how can I expect someone else to do it? Okay. So I'm an engineer. I've been working in this region for some time globally, total 20 years. I have a young family, but still making time to make those changes to support other people, to support younger generation in the industry, to have those conversations in a management level is extremely, extremely important. So I work for a global infrastructure company, ACOM. And amazingly, I've realized that globally, there's a unified, there's a lot of women who are in a vice president, president position doing amazing work. Okay. And it really inspires you. So I think we need to really see more, better, more, role models. And we have to voice those that where we would like to see and have those conversation in a management level. Sometimes those conversations are not taking place. Sometimes gender parity is not happening because it's simply not raised as a conversation. Secondly, it's simply not thought of. And the Third thing is that if a company has less women, sometimes the women don't speak up or say it or propose it. Like, have you thought about this? I work for a company where I'm incredibly blessed that there. this is a constant conversation. How do we bring more women in top roles, in management roles? And how do we, how do we have a balance, an equitable balance? Having said that, it's not just a company's response. It has to be a two-way conversation. When a woman get interviewed, they have to ask those questions like, what is the inclusion and diversity strategy? What percentage of women are in your management roles? Okay. We need to have those conversations because when we have those strong conversations and strong viewpoints, and when we are consistently supporting that and making those positive changes wherever we go, that is what we require from overall. So it's not, um, honestly, I don't think it's a societal issue or it, it's a thinking. It's a way of being. And we have to take responsibility and try to have those constant conversations. I know sometimes it gets difficult. Some places it gets difficult. Sometimes there are stereotypical thinking. And I have experienced that as well globally because I worked for different companies and that exists. But just because that exists, it shouldn't discourage us not to have those conversations. Right. I mean, the onus lies with everyone. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It really does. I mean, that's interesting because just talking about where the responsibility lies, it's good, good to have these conversations, but our organizations like Whoopsie, like, you know, events that bring women together that encourage and support them do they help do they is this where women can find necessary support in order to be incredibly vocal yes but women first have to make the decision to invest time on their own personal development 
most women spend more time at work and then family and then that's it and this is advice to more men women both but a person has to invest time effort on their personal development and identify where do i see myself how do i get there what are the places of refer what's my career ambition and what's my success how do i define my success there's a difference between success and ambition and most people don't know the difference so we have to be very clear uh, about these things and as a human being we have to be very clear how do we define that for ourselves if we don't take ownership of our own career and i will give an example when a man does something amazing in a job he will go and talk to other colleagues how amazing work he has done and he will tell his boss a woman when she does something amazing two things happen if somebody gives her compliment she will never take and own the compliment by saying thank you i appreciate i've done a great job the woman always say oh my team did it we did it together great amazing to show collaboration but you're not owning your success that's first thing second thing is that women don't women feel guilty to self promote themselves if you have done something great talk about it if somebody doesn't like it i do understand and respect that but so women usually expect other people to recognize their success and then promote them just because they have done a great job um i think that's asking a bit too much because i worked in four continents and <laughs> 20 years and i've realized that it's very important if we don't recognize our own success we can't verbalize it the value we are bringing in into a company into a relationship into a con- contribution it's not really fair to expect that that information will be magically transferred and people will get reverted so we have to be very comfortable in our own skin to own our success communicate that in a very methodical diplomatic value added way and then claim it that is interesting do you think that it is changing though now with the new vocal generation z that's tending to enter the workforce I think vocal generation is great but when a graduate engineer asks me only 2 months in a job my career is not moving fast enough and when I'm going to become a director that's a bit too much <laughs> you know and this has happened to that's me that's a bit too much that's a yes. bit too much so i think we all live in a world of amazon prime delivery where everything is fast and furious is tiktok everything is so fast but we must not forget what is the value we are adding in our own development and to the company and to the work we are doing so i have a lot of young people in my team i mentor a lot of young people and i hire a lot of young people and i always try to find an out of the box thinker whatever they have done what additional things they have done or what circumstances they have gone through to achieve that and i remember interviewing we were interviewing graduates and i was interviewing lots of graduates but there was one lady i interviewed and she said she had a young baby 3 months or 6 months she was living with her husband and her in-laws and she went through the final year architecture submission and she got honors and it blew my mind away because 
another young lady staying with their mom and dad when mom and dad is taking care of everything and she's going through the master's thesis where this lady had a husband, a baby to take care of, living with her in-laws and got this amazing master's thesis. And I just spoke to her and I knew at that moment, wow, she has grit. She has resilience. I hired her. I didn't ask her any question because I knew that, wow. The reason I'm sharing this is that Technical knowledge is we will learn in the job, but it's the experience, it's the grit, it's the having grit and resilience is very extremely important. But sometimes the young people don't focus on these things. All right, so let's do some rapid fire questions. Okay, let's go. What keeps you passionate about your job? Constantly learning about new things, my relationship with failure and not knowing things enough, and constantly Asking why. Great answer. Oh, a highlight of your career. I have two highlights. In the UK, when I finished the modeling of the first Net Zero building and I left UK and came to UAE in 2015, and I got a call from my boss in the UK saying, your project won the best sustainability project of the year award. In UK, and I was so happy. It got the highly recommended sustainability and the highest score, and I was so happy because I was happy because I learned something and contributed something. So that was first thing. The second thing was when I arrived in U- UAE, the first bid I submitted was for Museum of the Future. I, I joined Bora Happel as their sustainability associate. And my boss went on leave, and that's when the bid came. And winning the first bid in UAE was Museum of the Future. Winning that project, delivering Museum of the Future for Sustainability and Innovation has absolutely been an amazing experience. There's nothing to it. And of course, there are other things that came in. But these two experiences have been, I still remember the feeling of submitting that bid thinking. And I had the highest sustainability fee, I must say, because I knew that this project will become very tricky and it's not that simple project. But it was really a great experience to win that piece of work, to have the humbleness to challenge myself and my team to deliver that project. And running the first visioning workshop with the entire team for Museum of the Future was amazing. I was so nervous. But after running that visioning workshop, I got a call from message from Sean Keeler, who was the architect, saying, you did a great job. And I got a message from the project manager, Matthew Southwest, saying, Seriously, it was the best visioning workshop ever. And I, it just made my day. Oh, oh, that's wonderful to hear. Oh, Well, you mentioned that you're a mentor. Uh, what tip have you received or advice from a mentor over your, uh, your career that has really impacted you in a big way? First advice I received was to focus first 10 years of my career, not on money, but on experiences. And that was the best advice this person gave me. And he said, listen, the first 10 years, don't focus on money. Just just focus on experiences. And after 10 years, you're going to earn more money than you have lost in the first 10 years. And it's true. I've tested in my life. And it's true. That was the best advice. And I still give the same advice to other young people. The second advice in 2013, I met a really sustained, amazing, ambitious, business owner, a lady, and 
she said something to me that stuck with me. And from that day onward, I changed. She said she owned a lighting product company in UK and she was the most successful one. And she said, think of your career as a package, as a light, as a product. And how will you market this product to get the best value out of it? Now, think of yourself and the service you provide as a product. So how can you create more value for the people that you work with? And how can you communicate that to market your value? And what she said was how to do it authentically. That's the beauty of it, okay? We can all go and talk about how great we are, right? But adding value to what we do, understanding the impact and doing something with authentic self is so important. And that is one of the biggest advice that I give like to young people, like be authentic, raise your voice where required, but be very, very clear the value you're adding and be clear what, what is your contribution of that value. That's great advice to young people. <laughs> Authenticity, yeah. And then finally, what would you say is the city that best represents working towards net zero? For me, it's Copenhagen. I'm a slightly bit biased because in 2012, I worked with a company and we developed the 2025 Copenhagen strategy to make Copenhagen carbon neutral. And it was an amazing experience. What I find more amazing is that that was in 2012 and they were supposed to be carbon neutral by 2025. And three months ago, the mayor of Copenhagen very openly said, we cannot be carbon neutral by 2025 because we are short by XYZ, and we made some decisions that didn't really work. I think being a mayor, going in front of the world and stating what did work and what didn't work was very bold, first of all. And secondly, I respect it so much because even though they did not meet their 2025 carbon neutral goal yet, which they know they won't, they have done much better just because having a higher target and focusing on a higher target. So Copenhagen always plays a very important role in my career, in my work life and in my life because I worked on lots of projects and master plans towards a carbon neutral Copenhagen and the learning was amazing for me. Great. Well, thank you so much, Farah. This has been incredibly interesting and uh, thank you for the advice to young professionals as well, as well as your insight in sustainability and net zero cities. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed the content, visit cityscape-intelligence.com for more information. Until next time, goodbye.